We all know that parenting is hard. So how do parents with disabilities do it? With creativity and because we know of the value of interdependence. Come hear about ways experts say we can best empower these families and let's all learn about how parenting can be done differently. I'm your host, Marjorie Onos, and today my guest is Susan Collins. Susan is a senior research fellow at the Research Centre for Children and Families at the University of Sydney, Australia. She has been working in the field of parents and parenting with disabilities for several years. First, as a student of Dr. Gwyneth Llewellyn, pioneer researcher in the field, and also as part of the village who supported Amanda, a mom with an intellectual disability. I interviewed Amanda's twins, Beth and Lily, in our last episode. Susan has done groundbreaking research focusing on the children of parents with intellectual disabilities. We began our conversation talking about her involvement in the program Healthy Start that Dr. Gwyneth Llewellyn and Dr. David McConnell began, which we've discussed in previous podcasts with them. Enjoy, and don't forget, for more information about where to find the full recording and additional resources, check out the show notes. I was involved with Healthy Start as part of my PhD because my PhD was interested in children of parents with intellectual disability. And obviously the Healthy Start was about improving the, the capacity of the workforce to work with parents. And, there, and I think Gwyneth was very aware that there had been very little research at that time that was focused on children. Um, and in particular, um, and what we worked together on and what my, what my work with Healthy Start and my PhD was actually about bringing the, the voices of children and young people with that lived experience. Um, so to hear from children about being raised by parents with intellectual disability. And two of the um, three documents that you submitted for today's talk were about your PhD. So do you want to go into more, you know, uh, details what your PhD was exactly, what you looked at, and the kinds of results you got. One of the publications that I shared was a, a chapter for my PhD, which was a literature review of what we knew. So it was obviously a, an important piece of work for me to, to ground myself in understanding what we knew so far and how how that knowledge had informed not just research moving forward, but how practitioners understood the needs of children living in these families, you know, headed by a parent with intellectual disability. It was a really good experience to do that because what I came to understand from that was that we generally had thought about children um, as being at risk. So we'd ne we, we really didn't have a lot of evidence for children who did well. And I guess that framed really um, importantly um, my thinking about this group of children and, and the silencing of any stories that were about um, resilience, that were about strength and family, you know, families that were working well and were doing well. Uh, so I guess really wanting to, in some ways, challenge the idea that it's inevitable that children will, will be um, doing badly. And, and we're talking about developmentally, we're talking about out of home care placement, um, and a range of sort of 
problems socially. Um, so trying to sort of see, well, what happens if we talk to a group of children about their lives to try to understand how they see their lives at the point of being children. So I was I was talking to children who were what we would call primary school aged here in Australia, so middle school probably um, in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, they were children from about the age of seven to 12, um, that middle childhood stage. I really needed to think about how to engage children in conversations about their lives that were in ways that were kind of age and stage appropriate. So I started delving into, and this has been, I guess, a, a really a really great learning for me and has really influenced the research I do now, started thinking about how can you how can you engage people to talk about things where you're not just relying on them, the words they say, you're giving them other tools to speak to their experience. I used photo voice, which many people might know about, where you use sort of photo elicitation. So you use photos, you either take photos or you share photos as part of the research process to introduce yourself and your world um, and explain how you see your world. We also did, the, um, the young people, children that I talked to did, um, did some drawing. We used a sort of eco maps, I guess you could call them, looking at them in, in the context of their relationships. And I was really in interested in ecological systems theory. Um, so seeing the child not just in their home, but seeing how they see themselves in other relationships that are important in their life. I used those sorts of methods, as well as obviously having conversations and discussions with children. A lot of people uh, would do research with children, but maybe not think about sort of alternative methods of gathering that information, you know, using photos in terms of like, how do you introduce your world and who you are as a, as a person or as a family, basically. So I think that that was definitely very clever. How many, um, how many kids did you, were you able to find and interview? And yeah, that's a, a really good question. Um, really hard to recruit children for this study, um, despite me having all of the advantages that came with having good relationships with NGOs myself through being um, in, having been working in the NGO sector, plus having all of the relationships that came with Healthy Start. So it was a very, very small study, which was actually a strength of the study because it could go very deep. We were able to go very deep um, and I talked to some of the children up to four times, um, which was really important because, um, you know, you, there was a lot of rapport building in that. Uh, I also was really fortunate to be able to be introduced to children through my own um, professional networks. But I think, you know, it's the depth of knowledge, like you mentioned, and I think that that's, um, you know, definitely the benefit and the the added bonus of your study. And so if you were to, to talk about sort of like what came out of the study or what results, what would you say uh, were the most striking or the, the, the ones that spoke to you the most? I think what really um, shone through across, um, across that, you know, all the children's stories was the importance of their, their um, really the strength of their relationships with their mothers. So they were all children of mothers with intellectual disability and none of them had been in out-of-home care. So um, it was a very select sort of sample too. They were being raised in the community by their mothers. I guess the thing that was really important 
noticeable was who their mother had in their life to support them from the child's perspective. So, you know, we didn't directly talk about their mum's disability. We talked about their family. We talked about the people in their lives and the other adults. So they got to say, and they got to talk about how those adults supported them, how those adults supported their family. And, and what was really clear was when mothers had support, that flowed onto their children. Their children felt supported and felt connected to community, connected to school. There were bridges built between their, their, their home life and their other um, parts of their social worlds. Um, and what was really striking was it was the quality of that relationship and the benefits that were coming to the child. So how much the other adult um, supported their mother and also how much that support was directed to the child. Um, so it was about what they were interested in. It wasn't just about parenting skills. It wasn't just about somebody working with their mum. It was about what that person brought to them and, and, and how they supported their life, connecting them with activities in the community, with other people, with making sure they could they could get to sports, you know, be part of the other normal things that kids did, like birthday parties and, and so on. And, and that, that didn't have to be a family member. I think that was really striking. It, it could be a family member. Um, it could be indeed the father of the children, but it didn't have to be. It, it, could, it just needed to be somebody that, as Bron from Brenner says, you know, really, really cared about that kid, was mad about that kid. Um, so somebody who really was focused on resourcing, if you like, or on supporting that child's um, development and their interests, um, including service providers. And I think um, sometimes we underestimate the role that um, a service that's specially one that's around for a long time can have. You know, often we have short-term services um, and that's that's um, problematic because children's relationships, you know, children need support to develop those relationships. They can't, you can't really do that in a 12 month or two year service. Yeah. I think that definitely one, one uh, added value to your research was definitely that it's focusing on strength, you know, and it wasn't about sort of um, the families that we often hear in the research papers and um, that we have thus far, which is often sort of a group that comes from child welfare or is followed or has been followed in child welfare, which tells us like the families that maybe are struggling a little bit more. In your case, it was sort of families that were still together. Um, you know, the kids were not placed. And so that definitely shows in terms of what does it look like when it it's you know, those families are doing well and what elements of that could contribute to them doing well and thriving as a family. And I think that definitely that's, you know, something that's very important. And I hope that people will be reading um, your article, especially for that reason, to sort of have that positive image that we often do not have. You also talked about sort of, you know, that that support, that it could be people that support the mother, yet it's really about supporting the whole family, which includes the children. And certainly some discussions and interest that I have and that I've talked to uh, Dr. Spencer, Margaret Spencer, about is looking at co-parenting arrangements. But co-parenting 
when you sort of look at everybody, all those adults that are around each of the children and how their relationship play out. You know, how how does that work within the family in terms of um, showing for, for benefits and support with the children? So I thought that that was interesting also that in your research, you mentioned sort of that in that, you know, a community around children or around families is that important. The other part that I found fascinating is how you mentioned um, about service providers and how mm. we usually have like short term, you know, um, service provider engagement, when in truth for for children, that might be, you know, somewhat detrimental. And we are doing basically, um, you know, ill favor to them because we are basically, you know, throwing people that come in and leave very rapidly. Yeah. Uh, so I think that that's something to, to consider or think about, I think, when we offer services to uh, to these children um, and their family. Yeah. I don't know if you wanted to add something in terms of like my reflections on that, or should we go on? Because you also mentioned how, you know, your thesis research sort of um, gave you some knowledge to do other research, which you're yeah. currently doing. Yeah, I would echo definitely everything you say and that, and that family focused approach um, where we don't, we, we, where too often, and, um, and again, this is systems thinking, it's not necessarily about any individual practitioner, but systems tend to segment, you know, we, we like to segment, this is the client and this is the client. And in the case, and I, I know, as you said, um, Margaret Spencer talks a lot about this, you know, and we see this in the work that Margaret and I do together, this segmenting of, oh, well, the, the parents are, you know, the child's our client, not the parent. And, and we see this a lot in child welfare. And in fact, you know, but we're also hearing the stories of when it works, it works because we're taking a family-focused approach. Um, and, and we know from the research that the, the parents need sustained support, parents with intellectual disability, um, so do their children. You know, so I think that that is the, the message, you know, this this is about um, embedding and supporting as needs change and not and not seeing this as a quick fix. You can get in there and we'll just, you know, address that problem. So the child's isolated because the mother is socially isolated. We'll connect them in with some things, then we'll leave. That's not how these these things work to help children thrive, as you say. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good point. So tell me now about sort of the types of research that you're c conducting yep. and which led to the third article. So, so I am I am doing um, more research around looking at um, how child welfare and also um, our, our national disability insurance scheme are working or not working for parents with intellectual disability and their children. I'm, I'm doing some research around around that at the moment. But what I've been doing over the last decade really is looking at how to co-design research with people with lived experience. Um, and that's both lived experience of disability and or um, lived experience of the child welfare system, um, including as a, as a parent, as a carer, as a young person who was in care, um, and really trying to find new ways to involve people with that lived experience, not just as research participants, but really as research leaders and, co and partners. And so the, the third article I shared is based on a project um, 
that we did, I, I did um, with colleagues at the Research Centre for Children and Families at the University of Sydney. And we were looking to understand how young people with a care background saw this concept of permanency and understood it. It's a very kind of nebulous and imprecise and quite conceptual term. And, um, and we're finding in Australia, it's, it's leading policy in child protection. And this is, this is not new for, I think, our, you know, our North American and um, certainly colleagues in the United Kingdom, permanency planning has been a feature of, of um, the system for a long time, but it's newer to Australia to think about this. We did have children stay in foster care for really long periods of time. We had low rates of permanency through guardianship and adoption and low rates, really low, appallingly low rates of restoration, particularly affecting our First Nations um, families. So this has really started to drive policy reform, legislative reform over the last sort of six or seven years in New South Wales and, and in Australia. So we really wanted to say, well, actually, what do we know about what young people say about this? And we wanted to understand what it was like when you adjusted, adjusted left care, what you thought the system should understand about children who are in care and their permanency needs. We used photo voice and we and it was very much a participatory um, process of engagement with 11 young people over, we did it over two years. One of them was during COVID, so it was virtual, um, where we sort of discussed in big groups the sort of concepts of permanency and, and started to get some shared understanding um, with uh, young people and then they took photographs and um, we've just got a publication um, under review at the moment um, Look, at, talking about, and what was really interesting, this time we did actually analyse their photographs, which I didn't do for my PhD. And really, not only did the, were the words they were um, using so um, different to the way that permanency was spoken about in the literature and also in policy where the focus was on residential permanency, legal permanency, these are the important things. In fact, it was all about relationships. It was all about connections to people. And it was those really intangible things that, that the young people reflected on. We had some amazing um, symbols, um, lots about nature, which never came up in the research, but this was about immersion in nature, nature as a stabilising force even if things were unstable in your own life, that you that you um, going and looking at a sunset or a sunrise helped you feel a sense of connection to um, something beyond yourself, connection to um, a future, to a, to a hopeful future. Lots of images of the ocean and, and discussion about water and continuity and flow. So really a lot of symbolism and some beautiful images of what signified feeling home. So one young man who um, took a photograph of cookies um, and he said, what I remember is my foster mum making cookies with me and that smell was, you know, it's so evocative of home. I felt like I belonged there because we, did, we had this shared activity together and that was home for me. Another couple of people talked about being given a pet and that was didn't matter that someone said, you've got a legal order that says you belong here. You, this is your address now. You live here. 
when they were given a pet, their own pet, that meant they were there to stay. So you can see how the meanings that um, they attach to permanency were really um, evocative and very visual. Like, and, and it wouldn't have been the same had they just spoke. This wasn't the stuff that came up in the discussion. It was when they had taken the photographs and brought them back that they started to really gain some depth of thinking about what they brought to this understanding of how um, you come to feel a sense of stability and safety when you're a kid in foster care. Yeah. That is so powerful. And it actually made me um, think of a, an article that I read a, f a couple of years, now it's a couple of years old, and it was about moms with all kinds of disabilities. And photo voice also had been used in terms of identifying sort of, you know, their life and any narrative around accessibility. And those photos, I had seen some of them, were also very evocative. Um, and an example that will always sort of stay with me was this pile of dirty laundry in one of the photos. And the mom who took that photo had said, yeah, you know, workers come in my, my apartment and keep telling me, like, you should do the laundry, you should do the laundry, you should do the laundry. Yet none of them has asked me with my physical disability if I can access the laundromat that's three floors down. And so for her, that was like an image that was very, you know, uh, important in her daily sort of struggles of accessibility. And so I find that it's very, um, sometimes when we can't find words, uh, and sometimes it is difficult, and I would say with children, probably even more, that we're given sort of another tool to be able to get sort of to the core Absolutely. of what it is. Yeah. And that's a perfect image. Yeah, I can, that speaks volumes, doesn't it? And, and it's really, this study really hit home. So the state government department did a webinar. It's been shared as part of training for workers now. Um, and I think that's, that's a testament to, you know, something that's going to have a bit a, a lasting impact because it, um, they're having discussions now about what questions are we not asking? What are we not asking like about where the laundromat is and how accessible it is? What are we not asking about how we can help this child feel this is their home and really feel that sense of safety and, and permanency rather than us just assuming we know what it is as adults? So, yeah. Spot on. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing that I would add also is um, I have a very strong interest in like life stories and using storytelling, you know, to yeah. to, to build sort of like a sense of ide identity and sort of be able to be reminded. And so in a way, also, those photos could be used for them in terms of later on to be able to say, like, this were the cookies that I baked and this yes. was, you know, the part that I went to when I walked my dog, you know, Absolutely. and so that becomes their own sort of, I guess, storytelling and, and legacy in some way that they carry with uh, with them. So That's so true because life story work is about doing that. And we, that was one of our recommendations was, you know, ask, ask children directly. Don't just ask the carer. Um, what the child needs, ask the child and ask them in ways that they can communicate back to you best. You know, ask in a variety of ways um, and, yeah, kind of get to know that. Again, it's the message is get to know this child and what what's important in their, in their world. And, and we, we did say that, you know, photographs are a great way and it doesn't have to be in a therapeutic 
um, context where a professional trained clinical psychologist does it. You can do it as a caseworker. You can do this work. You can. We're all part of this um, support structure around this child and this family. Um, and there's no, no, no stopping you from doing this same thing. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't have to just be a research tool either. Yeah. Which is amazing because basically, I mean, that's what you, you, you talk about, right? It's like you did research, but it, with um, a sort of an end goal of something that would be useful and put back into practice. And I think that that's, that's the best way to do research, in my opinion. Um, yeah. Or the one that I prefer, let's say, because Absolutely, we can yeah. advocate for it. Yeah, well, because we want to we want to change the world, don't we, Marjorie? So we do. <laughs> it's the best way to do research if you you want to exactly. change things. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm. I mean, we could go on and on because it's always fascinating uh, to dive into those uh, specific questions. Um, but let's move on to the third part of the the podcast. Where do you see sort of the field of parents and parenting with intellectual disabilities go in the future? I guess what inspires me is trying to find ways to support lived experience experts um, and to work alongside them and to develop their their skills and to understand what it is that they think the research questions that we should be tackling are. And again, as I, I guess I kind of talked about earlier too, some of that is really about building strong relationships, not just with individuals, but with the services and organisations and um, advocacy bodies who know and support and have um, relationships with people with intellectual disability who have already said, we want to be leaders, please, please involve us, please let us take this. And, and I'm really excited by where this can take us, Marjorie. I feel like it's completely untapped potential and, um, you know, there are some excellent groups forming in Australia that are kind of a part, part of that family inclusion network, particularly around child protection involvement um, and leadership in that, that I think has, again, not really involved parents with intellectual disability, but we are starting to see greater interest in hearing and involving those parents meaningfully with the support of their allies. We can't just do business as usual. We have to adapt our approach to make sure that this is genuine inclusion and genuinely led by um, those parents. That's an emerging area that I'm really fascinated by and, um, and I hope to see more research that is reporting on studies that have used co-design and co-research with parents with intellectual disability. And what I like also, because I've, I've heard of some initiatives that you, you've taken, you and your team and the people you work with, I know that also when you talk about inclusive research, it's not just a name on a paper, that you're actually really doing inclusive research where they lead in terms of like their questions and what they want to talk mm -hmm. about. And I think that that's really like how we could be efficient in doing that. It's not just like, oh, yeah, I asked a few questions to like three people, um, but it's actually involving them from the ground up and building the research. Yeah. Yeah. And children and young people, actually, I think that's something we haven't yet also heard enough of there are some you know some again if we're thinking about change social change uh, and social movements um, I think you know there is also opportunities for young people and young adults who have been raised by parents with intellectual disability to be part of the conversation in a more 
um, active way and for them to tell us what research would have been useful, what would have been helpful, what questions they would have wanted answered to, Marjorie. So I will ask you one last question. If you were able to talk to childcare workers right now about their work, uh, what would you want them to hear? I think I'd just like to encourage workers to really believe in the potential of um, families to thrive, families and parents with intellectual disabilities, and find the people in their life who can help them thrive. Be one of those people, A. Believe in them, um, listen to them, listen to what they think is important and find other people in their lives. There are other people, you know, circles of support around the parent. Building that community is critical and you can only do that if you believe that whatever the problems they have can be changed. You know, you can be part of that change. Yeah. Yeah, I like how you end, you know, one in the belief that it's possible and two in in also sort of talking about community because each of us who are parents would tell you anyways that we didn't do it on our own. There were a lot of people involved and I think it's, you know, it would be very unfair if we thought or sort of held parents with intellectual disabilities to a different standard saying, no, you have to do it on your own. Yeah. So I want to thank you so much for um, having this chat with me. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Thanks, Marjorie. This podcast was supported in part by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Human Services, Children and Family Services Division.